0: why do you have to start this way i mean because i can't <laughs> it's justifiable guys what's up we're back it us <laughs> <laughs> it does <laughs> is this what episode it doesn't matter what number remember 14 uh, it's not i don't know it's not 14 i don't think <laughs> i don't know if i can remember at this point it's just turn got labels. To go for- it's my turn to go first today right because you went first last time. Because you yes. we were supposed to go first before that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cause before we before we start, dark, dark hair right I've got dog right. hair everywhere, my friend. Yeah, but this one's like in. The no, they're <laughs> in my glasses. <laughs> like literally, it's in taking we... over. <laughs> you really really not have to because it's Right here. No. It's right over here. Somewhere. Ranger, why? <laughs> <laughs> why are yeah, it slipped like out, this? but I was like, that'll become a problem. <laughs> La Llorona, take my dog, please. <laughs> we still need to watch that, but it's not even out yet. We need to watch them. I got your belly. Anyways. <laughs> I, I smacked my dog, sorry. <laughs> Anyways. They're just laying there trying to fall asleep. I got your belly. <laughs> I got your belly. Don't think about someone tickling your armpits <laughs> Ooh, or your elbows. <laughs> Who the fuck tries to tickle somebody's elbows? Well, it's just really weird when people come up behind you and you're like, oh, excuse me. And they just grab your elbow and you're like, Ugh. it's like the least physical like, contact area in your body. Never had that experience. Um, So I wanted to make an announcement. So uh, we're going to start having some more social media. I'm not sure what all it is as of right now, but I'll let you know next time. Uh, We're going to start having a third person on set with us, uh, our good friend Grace. I gave her a shout out in the last episode. And... She's going to be running our social media for us. So it will be us commenting back, but she's going to be viewing all the comments and, you know, blocking people that are being inappropriate. So you're welcome to. She's going to, because I think what we're going to try to do is probably have like a Snapchat, a Twitter. I don't know about an Instagram, but that way, because emailing is kind of just like old school and not a lot of people do it. That way you guys can follow us and kind of get behind the scenes of us just sitting on a messy bed. But I mean. Excuse me. It is. It's a futon. Close enough. And it's not messy anymore. Everything <laughs> the, around the it area <laughs> around it is. But um so I think we're gonna start that up and that way there's more communication. Um, but once again, probably in the start or the very end of episodes, we'll probably go through messages from Instagram or like Snapchat questions or anything like that, because I think we'll just start like a mini series of like Questions from you guys or something like that, just whatever interaction. Well, like we if we get. haven't talked about this, and you're like, we'll start a mini series. I'm like, bitch, I, I didn't talk about this. If we get interaction, it's something we could do. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so we'll have Grace on set with us starting next week. Uh, this week she had some stuff to do, and I wanted to give her some time to prepare. She's also going to be having uh, kind of like a binder of extra murderers. If one of us like gets something wrong or tries to like redo one. Uh, That way, you know, it's not like a quick, hold on, let me um, explore the interwebs of, you know, just finding random stuff like I did in one episode. That's just how life goes sometimes. Um, She won't really be doing her own murder, uh, so you won't hear a lot from her. Yeah, she'll just be in the background. We'll introduce her probably the first episode she's here with us, and then from there you'll just know that she's with us. Or she might not be. Either way, it's just we have a little extra help with that type of stuff so are you ready i mean i think so (laughs) Bitch, listen you still need to send me that list (laughs) list of what oh what i have yeah i'm never gonna do that of course not then i'm gonna come here and you're gonna be like hey and i'm gonna be like you didn't tell me (laughs) you should just ask me what you have but i don't want to (laughs) ask me what you have you should just tell me what you have you shouldn't ask me what you have because I won't know <laughs> yeah but some days it's like two days before and I'm like oh hey I finally found something but then I usually don't tell you because then I don't want you to be like hey I know that well if you don't tell me and you get here and you have that and I go hey I know that then you get upset not always but most of the time so how is that a good plan <laughs> I don't know just tell me what you're doing no <laughs> so I mine is need to know the haircut killer so <laughs> <laughs> You get that now. Danilo Restivo was born in Sicily. <laughs> Danilo Restivo was born in Sicily in 1993. Mm-hmm. I will kill you. Oh, I'm not doing that. I was like, oh, Sicily, like, mmm, like pizza. Okay, like I was Italy. like, I'll kill you. No, yeah, no, I'm not doing it. That. That's like literally my reaction. You're like, Italy. I was like, mmm, pizza. Yeah, but I thought you were just doing the like, mm. I was like, bitch? No. Uh, in 1993, <laughs> he was living with his parents in the Italian city of Potenza. I'm sorry that I pronounced that wrong. Potenza! He would attempt to arrange dates with girls by claiming to have a present for them. Do you just go up to, like, a stranger and just go, I have a present for you? And like, I don't need your dick in a box. <laughs> it's a dick in a box. Max. That's a song. Yeah, I know what it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. Restivo harassed those who rejected him with phone calls where he would play the soundtrack to Profondo Rosso, a film about a serial killer. Because <laughs> well, if that doesn't hint to something, I don't know what does. I will leave this voice this soundtrack in your voicemail. Oh my <laughs> god. Oh my gosh. The crow of judgment. <laughs> uh, so, Claps, the 16-year-old daughter of a tobacconist, felt sorry for him. She agreed to see Restivo- <laughs> Who's <laughs> no, like, the is No, this the last embarrassing, name. And they were just like, it's her claps, last name. Claps. perfect. Sounds beautiful. It's her last name. That's fucking a shitty last name. She agreed to see Restivo at the 15th century church of the Most Holy Trinity in the center of the city on Sunday, 12 September 1993. Elisa Claps, accompanied by a female friend, went to meet Restivo at the church, arriving at around 11:30 a.m. just as mass finished. When she did not return home, Elisa's older brother, Gildo, called the Restivo family residence and was told that Restivo was out of town. Italian people have some weird names. <laughs> like, this is not even, like, a joke. Like, they, like, how do you come up with that name? Because it probably means something in Italian. I will name you Soup. But in my language, so it sounds fine to everybody else. <laughs> Don't make fun of the victims in this. I'm not making fun. It's just a statement of how the fuck did she get that name? (laughs) When Gilda went to the church, the priest in charge, Domenico Sabia, was already gone along with the only key to the church. What? Domenico? That's a place. Well, it's like almost a place. It's Dominican. (laughs) That's why I was like, it's almost a place. Gilda reported the disappearance of his sister to the police, but he was told that the matter was of no urgency. Yeah, I know. If... if what the (laughs) fuck guys Uh, she probably just like ran away from home like it's of no urgency when a policeman questioned him Restivo said Elisa had left the church while he stayed to pray he explained that a cut on his hand was the result of an accident he said that later that day he had gone to Napoli the Restivo family declined the policeman's uh, request for clothes Restivo had been wearing and was denied the authorization to search the home by his superior sabia the priest opposed the search of the church restivo was known to the police who believed him to have been responsible for nine incidents in which women had their hair clandestinely cut so clandestinely means to be done in a secretive and illicit illicit way oh so basically like, he sits behind them and just like cuts their hair yeah <laughs> and keeps it i don't know <laughs> my dog's whining he wants back in understand what's like it's hair <laughs> yeah i know like, it's not like flesh it's not like a, a texture it's just a color there's not really a smell no there's a smell what are you talking about well if you burn hair there's a smell but if i cut your hair no and then people's smell hair it like... smells like shampoo it has smell like a month later it's still gonna smell like shampoo yeah it might i mean do you want to test this theory because <laughs> no, I, I don't but he did i guess <laughs> That's really weird. he was also thought to have tied up two children before cutting one with a knife A magistrate refused to issue an arrest warrant for Restivo in June 1994. (laughs) I've just slashed your child, but, you know, don't arrest me. (laughs) But four months later, he was taken into custody. An Italian policeman who interviewed Restivo described him as cunning and precise in his answers. Alicia's disappearance was the subject of intense media interest and speculation. The case gradually became an obsession to the people of the town. Uh... Alicia's face, her long, dark hair, thick glasses, and carefree smile haunted the town. says Tobias Jones, who is a reporter oh, okay. An acquaintance of Alicia said that she was abducted by criminals. Alicia's diary had a pass sorry had a page missing, and there were apparently words written in Albanian. The connection to Albania was thought to be thought by some to be the most promising line of inquiry. Uh, Gildo alleged the investigation. Alleged the investigation into his sister's disappearance had been hindered. The investigation was taken away from the Potenza authorities and moved 120 kilometers away to Salerno. 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 I'm gonna say Salerno. Sal or no? <laughs> Salerno. Well, it's S-A-L. It's like sale R no. Salerno. I don't know. Salerno? You just said what I said. Uh, next Alicia's friend was accused. the friend stated that she was accom- that she accompanied Alicia to the church 11:30 a.m. So they're accusing the friend that took her to the church of like murdering her. So Alicia told the friend she would be back in half an hour. Prosecutors accused the friend of lying and suspected her involvement in the disappearance. They asserted that she had been seen with Alicia after that or later that day the assumption that alicia had left the church moved the focus of the investigation away from the church and therefore the church was not thoroughly searched the accused friend is presumed innocent but the prosecution can appeal the sentence so in 1996 restivo was tried for giving false information he testified that he met alicia in a curtained area behind the altar before she left minutes later he admitted that he had previously taken girls to a room on the first floor of the church In 2010, the remains of Alicia were found years, sorry, years, yards from that location. Uh, So this started in 1993. In 2010, they found her body. That's gotta smell horrible. Why do you always go there? It was buried. Oh, okay. Well, because you said that he takes them to a room on the first floor and it was like yards away and I was like... Was she just in like a broom closet? Like no, that's where I went. I was like, she is definitely decaying <laughs> she in like was a closet, and it's gotta smell horrible. Why do you always go to smell? Because death smells horrible. But you say this like every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it smells oh fucking shitty, and I need to remind new people and old people it smells horrible. <laughs> in May two thousand two, Restivo arrived in England and moved in with a Burnmouth woman. So Burnmouth is a place in England. Okay. Uh, or Bournemouth, sorry. He lived across the street from Heather Barnett, a mother of two who worked from home as a seamstress. Restivo visited Heather's flat on November 6, 2002 to discuss having curtains made. On November 12, Heather was found by her children, age 11 and 14, when they came home from school. They waited for police to arrive at the home of Restivo. She had been bludgeoned to death with a hammer, and her breasts, which had been severed, were beside her head. A lock of hair, which was not Heather's, had been placed in her right hand, and some of her own hair was under her left hand. The hair comes into play. Why did he cut off her banners? I don't know. He <laughs> like, just did. I, that was like the one strange thing to me because I just imagined she looked real weird because she's just flat chested and like tits are just right here. Like, like Mickey Mouse ears is what I'm oh imagining. Oh my god. <sighs> the time of death was estimated to be shortly after Heather returned home after taking her children to school that morning. Restivo was immediately a person of interest for detectives because he had been first on the scene, having been returning home with his female companion when the alarm was raised by Heather's children. Police took him in for questioning. Three days later, he was released without charge. At an early stage, he had produced a bus ticket stamped at 8.44 a.m. to support his alibi of having been on his way to a computer course at the time of the murder. The detectives heading the inquiry later said that Restivo gave the impression of being bumbling, Forensic investigation showed the killer had left a few traces of the crime scene. There was a trail of bloody shoe prints that ended suddenly. This was thought to indicate the killer had changed his shoes before leaving Heather's house. Although Heather's son told police the day after the murder that his mother's key went missing after Restivo's visit on November 6th, and he was found to have soaked his trainers in bleach, but was not strongly suspected at first because of his alibi. You can just get a bus ticket from somebody else. Like, that doesn't, that's not strong at all. Like, your girlfriend could have just given you her bus ticket and been like, here, have it. You're just like, huh. In light of Alicia's disappearance and suspicious behavior, detectives regarded him as chief suspect, but there was not sufficient evidence for a prosecution. There is so much fucking evidence. Like, (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. In March 2004, he was put under close surveillance using electronic tracking and listening devices. Police overheard Restivo being spoken to by his parents and female companion as if he were a child. He was observed on repeated visits to a beauty spot where he was covertly filmed as he apparently stalked lone women. On May 12, 2004, the surveillance team became alarmed. Um, a uniform patrol was ordered to stop and search Restivo on a pretext. Although it was a warm day, he was wearing waterproof over trousers. In his car, police found an identical change of clothing, filleting knife, scissors, balclava, and gloves. Balclava is a mask. In June 2004, a schoolgirl identified Restivo as the man who had cut her hair on a bus. In November 2006, he was arrested and his home searched. Police found a lock of hair. Trainers he had worn on the day of the murder had traces of blood, but it could not be identified. Cases of bleach? Maybe. In 2008, new techniques revealed a blood-stained towel left at the murder scene had a DNA match for Restivo, but he claimed to have left it on the visit to the home of Heather on the 6th. The evidence was still judged insufficient for a prosecution. (laughs) After Alicia's body was found in a brick alcove beside the bell tower of the Italian church, it was decided that the evidence against Restivo was sufficient for a prosecution two months after Alicia's body was found. uh, Restivo was charged with the murder of Heather Barnett. In May 2011, Recibo was found guilty of murder and the judge sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in prison. Which he did. How was there never <laughs> evidence? Like, I know. this is what I don't understand and this is why people get murdered, like, because you just go, no, I mean, he had a bus ticket and he's... So? What the fuck does that well, mean? Well, it's also, they didn't have, so he didn't have past... Uh, a past of murder because they hadn't found Alicia's body until after he'd already done this kind of thing. Well, it's still like they know that he tied up two children and like cut, cut one of them. The, that was in Italy, he was in England. That's still like, I don't know if the police knew about that. That's still fucking crazy. Like, how do you a, not know? And then, like, if this, like, the, a bus ticket is not enough evidence to also claim someone innocent either. Like, yeah, but they were like, yeah, he has an alibi. All, uh, it seems sound. He's bumbling. Like, he's well, like see, so that's, hard that's the part that I thought was so interesting because the first time, so he was like 16 or 15 when he killed Alicia because she was the same age. And he seemed cunning And he was precise with his words. And so that tells me that he learned. So the next time the police questioned him, he acted as though he didn't, like, he was stupid. And he didn't understand anything. Well, and it's also, I feel like the reason, like, this is just my own thing. I feel like the reason he went for women is because he's, like, they said they surveyed, like, his parents, like, talked to him like a child. But he was smart. Maybe he, like, made them do it. Like, they have no evidence that he didn't. They have no evidence that they, like, he didn't. But it's also one of those that you could also just say, like, maybe he didn't have, like, the best home life. And that's why he went after women. Like, it could be if his mom down, like, talked to him like a child, like, his entire life. Maybe that's, like, his motive. Maybe, I don't know. But I don't think it is. I think he was just, like, never loved by women, so he he's like, just got mad. Maybe he's like, I like people with, like, pretty hair. And that was just he's like, also, he's a big man. Like, big man. Oh, he, I, he, I he's saw, a heavy set. Yeah, I, like, was looking at pictures for them, and he, yeah. He's a big boy. Yeah. That's great. I also, if we don't have like enough time. I have two other murders. Yeah, I know you fucking do okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. But I'm so excited to share. I know you're excited. And I'm sorry. I don't have time back. <laughs> so I'm doing uh Dana Sue Gray and she is in uh an American serial killer and she murdered three elderly women. Um so kind of her early life is she was born Dana Sue Armburst or armbrust on December 6th of 1957- oh, it's arm burst. <laughs> Her arm, arm just burst. explodes. <laughs> she's, she's spontaneously <laughs> combusting. Um, but she was born on December 6th of 1957 in Southern California to Beverly, me, Arnett, and Russell Armburst. Whatever, fuck it. I'm not saying my last name. So Russell was a hairdresser and had three previous marriages before marrying Beverly, who was the former beauty queen. They had several miscarriages before she was born. Beverly was an aggressive, vain woman who frequently maxed out her husband's credit cards. They finally divorced when her husband found her grappling with an older woman who had angered her. Dana Sue was two years old at the time and afterwards rarely saw her father. She began acting out to get attention. Whenever Beverly would discipline her, Dana would retaliate by stealing money by- to buy candy and would occasionally fly into fits of violence. In school, she did not get along well with other students and did poorly in all of her classes. She was suspended from school many times for forging notes to get out of class. When Dana was 14, her mother developed breast cancer. Gray decided to become a nurse after watching hospital nurses treat her mother. After her mother's death, Gray moved in with her father, but was forced to leave after her stepmother found drugs in her room. A few years later, she became involved with a skydiving instructor who got her pregnant twice. He convinced her to abort both pregnancies, something she resented. So kind of part of her personal life is she graduated from Newport Harbor High School in 1976. She lived in, with her uh, skydiving instructor, Rob, for the next several years, and he helped her with nursing school. She became an expert skydiver. In 1981, she graduated from nursing school and for the next few years had an on-again, off-again relationship with Chris Dodson, a windsurfer. Dana excelled in windsurfing and golf, and they took trips to Hawaii to participate in these activities. In October of 1987, Gray married a man... Named Will Bill L. Gray. At an upscale winery in the- Okay, she did quotations, but since you can't see it- It's Will. And they they would call him Bill. But he was a fellow sports enthusiast who had known and admired her since high school. She was a serious athlete, very fit and beautiful with pretty blonde hair. The marriage quickly got into trouble, however, when she dug dug them deeply into debt. At this point, she had also estranged from her two half-brothers having burned many bridges in a dispute over an aunt's will. So, she was a labor and delivery nurse in Inland Valley Regional Medical Center. They lived in the gated community of Canyon Lake, where they had several business ventures under the name Gray Matter. Gray left her husband in early 1993 and moved in with their friend and her lover, Jin Wilkins, and his young son, Jason. In June 1993, she filed for divorce from Gray, though this was not finalized until after Dana had been in jail for quite some time. In September of 1993, she and Gray filed for bankruptcy to stave off foreclosing their... uh, Canyon Lake House. Although the value of the house had in- greatly increased since they purchased it, they owed much more on the house than it was worth. On November 4th of uh, November 24th of 1993, she was fired from the hospital where she worked for misappropriating uh, derm- uh, Demerol. Demerol. Yeah, Demerol and other opiate painkillers. On February 14th, uh, 1944, she sent Dana sent word through Gray's parents. Um, that she wanted to meet up with her estranged husband. Gray finally uh, agreed, but did not show up. Later that day, Dana murdered Norma Davis, an elderly lady whose home Dana had shared for a time. Gray later found out that Dana had taken out an insurance policy on him. The policy would have paid off uh, the Canyon Lake House in the event of Gray's death. So these were the victims of Dana Gray. So, there was Norma Davis, who was 86, is thought to be Gray's first victim because of the lack of evidence. However, Gray was never convicted of killing her. Norma was the mother-in-law of the woman, Jerry Davis, who married Dana's father in 1988. Jerry's first husband, Bill Davis, was Norma's son. Bill died early in the 1980s, and his widow eventually married Dana's father, Russell Armbrust. Jerry continued to care for the elderly mother-in-law even after she remarried. Dana knew Norma very well. On February 16th of 1994, Norma Davis had been dead for two days when she was found by her neighbor, her neighbor, Alice Williams. Davis had a wood-handled utility knife sticking out of her neck and a fillet knife sticking out of her chest. Other than a broken fingernail, she had no other marks. A bloodied Afghan lay at her feet. Detectives learned that there was no forced entry into the house. Detectives were informed that she always kept her door locked unless she was expecting a visitor. Williams stated she could not remember Davis mentioning she was expecting company. Davis found a Nike shoe print pointed towards the kitchen. They also found Davis' $148 social security check. On the first floor of Davis's combo, a smear of blood was found on an armchair. A ripped-out phone cord was also found. Then there was June Roberts. June Roberts, 66, was killed on February 28 of 1994. She, like Norma Davis, lived in a gated community of Canyon Lake. Gray had visited Roberts one day claiming she wanted to borrow a book about controlling a drinking problem. Roberts let Gray into her house. While Roberts searched for the book, Gray unplugged Roberts' phone, both the straight cord and the curly cord. Then she used the curly cord to strangle Roberts. When Roberts was dead, she rifled through her credit card, stealing two. An hour later, Gray went into a, uh, went on a massive shopping spree at an upscale shopping center in Temecula. Then there was Dorinda Hawkins. Hawkins uh, was 57 at her, um, and she was attacked while at her job at an antique store. Hawkins had been working alone that day. Gray came in to buy a picture frame for a photo of her deceased mother. Gray strangled her with a telephone cord. She took $5 from Hawkins' purse and 20 from the cash register. An hour later, Gray went on another shopping spree, using Robert's credit card. Hawkins had survived the assault, however, and was able to give detec- detectives a description of Gray. The next day, the story was in the newspaper. Then there was Dora Beebe, or Beebe, however you want to say that. On March 16th of 1994, Girl- Gray killed Dora. A few minutes later, or after BB, BB, <laughs> BB, <laughs> B-B- <laughs> however, a few minutes after she came home from a doctor's appointment, Gray pulled up in front of Bebe's house. <laughs> I fucking give up. <laughs> Bebe's house. Bebe. <laughs> Bebe. <laughs> <B-B- laughs> Gray knocked on Bibe's <laughs> door and asked for directions. Dora fucking... Dora invited Gray inside to look at a map. Once Gray, once inside, Gray attacked and killed Dora. <laughs> Dora no, was she killed Bebe. Be... <laughs> Bebe was later found that day by her boyfriend of eight years, Louis uh, Dorman. Bebe! Bebe! <laughs> what happened, Bebe? <laughs> An hour later, Gray used Bebe's credit card to go on a shopping spree. <laughs> it feels so weird. She was Bebe. <laughs> Bebe. Uh, cool. Well, it's B-E-E-B-E. B-E-B-E. <laughs> B-E-B-E. It's bibe, But it sounds like B-E-B-E. No, because you're not, you're drawing it out. It has to be b-bay. B-bay. I know, but it's harder to say than Bebe. <laughs> <B-bay. B-bay. laughs> so, some of the effects of killing in Canyon Lake. So many of the residents were terrified. Some moved in with loved ones until the murder was solved. A group of elderly widows began sleeping in big groups at designated houses. They believed that there was safety in numbers. Many residents theorized the murders were committed by a cult who engaged in ritual sacrifice. (laughs) Um, Some of the potential suspects. um, So, the detective actually had problems finding suspects early on. And at one point, it was so hard to find a lead that the supervisor in charge recommended using a psychic. Before Dana Gray was thought to be the serial killer, detectives had few other suspects. So, in the case of Norma Davis, uh, detest- detectives suspected Jerry Armbrust might be the killer. From talking to Armbrust, detectives learned that she used to be married to Davis's son. After Norma De- Davis' son died, Jerry continued to care for her former mother-in-law. When Jerry remarried, it was to Russell Armbrust, you know, we talked about this, um, but Davis was in very poor health and was still recovering from a triple by- uh, bypass surgery. Detective found it was strange that uh, Jerry would take care of someone who had, was not a blood relative and she was wearing Nikes. Detective also speculated that Jerry had been in Davis' house the Sunday before the murder. She claimed uh, she only stopped by Davis' house to drop off groceries and heard the TV on upstairs but did not go up to say hi. She just left the groceries and went home. Detectives wondered why she would not say hello. After weeks of talking with Jerry and building a report, uh, Detective Greco... They have weird names. Realized she was not the person they were looking for. Greco and Jerry became friends and began helping each other during the investigation. Ultimately, it was the friendship and trust that would pivot uh, would be pivotal in the solving the case. So, where is it? So, she was actually finally caught because of the description was obtained from uh, various merchants in the Temecula, California area, where she used uh, credit cards to go on a shopping spree. She had been spending so much money that the credit card company called June Roberts' family to alert them of the massive spending. The detectives then went to all the stores where Gray used the credit cards and interviewed cashiers getting a physical description of Gray. They also learned the killer had dyed her hair recently and had a little boy named Jason. So, because the detective kept in touch with Jerry, he began providing the description of the killer to her on a visit to her home. Jerry would reveal to Greco that the day that she believed the spec, the suspect, the suspect to be her stepdaughter, Dana had just dyed her hair and had a boyfriend with a son named Jason. Detective Greco wrote a search warrant for Gray's home and established the help of ARCnet, Allied Riverside Country Narcotics Enforcement Team, to stake out Gray's home. So, unbeknownst to the team, Gray was murdering Dora just hours before they began follow her, trying to collect evidence. After seeing Dana go to the bank with BB's card, bebe, and then go shopping, the detectives had enough information for Nexus involving uh, Dora's murder. After that day, Greco arrested Dora- not Dora- Dana while she was cooking dinner for her family. They took uh, her into custody while assisting officers took her boyfriend and his son down to the station for questioning. So she claimed she never took the credit cards, but they had evidence. They had all the evidence. Um, But she stuck with it for hours, claiming the reason she kept the cards was she had an overwhelming need to shop. She also seemed to have no sympathy for the victims. So after trying to obtain a confession, uh, it was unsuccessful. But they eventually just booked her on charges of murder. Um, At a hearing on July 23rd, WDDA Richard Bentley requested the death penalty. Gray pleaded insanity on all counts. After a witness claimed to have seen Gray at Robert's house the day of her death, Great changed her plea to guilty to robbing and murdering two women and attempting to murder another. By pleading guilty, she avoided the death penalty. On October 16th, 1998, she was sentenced to life without parole and was incarcerated at the California Women's Prison in Chowchilla. Chowchilla! Chowchilla! That's my story. Wow. Wow. I have a desperate urge to shop. <laughs> I already have these dead women's credit cards because my need to feed my Adichan. <laughs> so, we're at 30. Wow. Do you want to do another one? I mean, do you want me to do another one? I mean, you're free to if you feel like it. <laughs> do you want the Royal Oak <laughs> Sniper? Or... Ramon Raghav. Ramon Raghav. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Ramon Raghav, baby! Ramon Raghav lived from 1929 to 1995. He was a psychopathic serial killer who operated in the city of Mumbai, then Bombay, India, in the mid-1960s. Very little is known about Raghav's early life or circumstances that led him to commit the crimes. I thought you were going to say, led him to be a cannibal. Whoa, did not expect that. A series of brutal murders in the outskirts of Mumbai rocked the city in August 1968. Pavement and hutman dwellers were bludgeoned to death while they slept. Damn. All the murders took place at night and were committed by using a hard and blunt object. I mean, at least they were sleeping, though. Like, I'll give him that. They may not have been, though. Well, he said bludgeoned while they were, like, sleeping. Well, it was at night. They were presumed to be sleeping. Most of them were sleeping, I would assume. Okay, I was like, well, I mean, at least they were sleeping. Uh, The Mumbai police and the media realized a serial killer was operating in the city. A similar series of murders had taken place some years earlier, 1965 to 66, in the eastern suburbs of Mumbai. In that year, as many as 19 people had been attacked, out of whom nine victims died. At the time, a suspicious-looking man found loitering in the area had been picked up by the police. His name was Raman Raghav, a homeless man, and he was already in police files, having spent five years in prison for robbery. However, as no hard evidence could be found against him, none of the surviving v- victims had seen this man, uh, the police let him go. When the killer struck again in 1968, the police launched a manhunt for him. Uh, Ramakan kolkarni then the Deputy Commission of, uh, Commissioner of Police took over the investigation and spearheaded a massive combing operation in the city. This time, the police not only managed to ro- uh, to, rap- to rob him, <laughs> to rob they him. found him and went, put up your hands, give me all your money. This time, <laughs> the police not only managed to nab him, they got him to confess. He admitted that he had killed uh, 23 people in 1966, along the Great Indian Peninsular Railway line, and committed almost a dozen in 1968 in the suburbs. However, it is likely that he killed many more. It was his casual approach to killing that led the police to suspect that he did not remember the exact number of people he had killed. He's like, eh, I don't remember. Around, like, 23. Like, 23, 27. (laughs) You know, a a dozen the year before, something like that. (laughs) Sub-inspector of police Alex Falo recognized, uh... Rahman Ragav from file oh, photographs and descriptions provided by those who had seen him. Fallow detained and searched him in the presence of two respectable witnesses from the area. The suspect give, uh, gave his name, but old records disclosed that he had several aliases like Cindy Dalwai. Uh, Cindy Dalwai. S-I-N-D-H-I. Okay. So it's not like Cindy. I was like, he took on a female alibi? He did. Talway, and then Anna. Bambi and Fambi? yeah, he wanted to be Bambi and I have my nickname. the Luswami. Luswami. The suspect carried on him a pair of spectacles, two combs, a pair of scissors, a stand for burning incense, soap, garlic, tea dust, and two pieces of paper with some mathematical figures. Uh, the bush shirt and khaki shorts which he was wearing had blood stains, and his shoes were full of mud. I like that he's like I carry incense, I carry combs. And like, mathematical figures. Yeah, I was like, why are you carrying around math? Like, death to all humanity is someone carrying math. <laughs> he was arrested and described <laughs> as tall, well-built, and dark-complexioned. The preliminary... market dark and handsome, sit <laughs> up with some murder. <laughs> the preliminary trial was held in the court of additional chief presidency, ma- presidency magistrate. Huh. For a long time, Raghav refused to answer questions... However, he began to answer their questions after police fulfilled his request for dishes of chicken to eat. I just want chicken. <laughs> That's all it takes. He then gave a detailed testimony describing his weapon and his modest operandi. <laughs> <laughs> the case was then a committed. No. to Sessions Court, Mumbai. When the trial started on June 2, 1969, the Council of Defense made an application that the accused was incapable of defending himself on account of unsoundness of mind, and he also sub- submitted that even during the alleged offenses, the accused was incapable of knowing the nature of his acts. Therefore, Raghav ah! was sent to the police surgeon who, absor- who observed him from June 28 to the 23rd of July in 1969, and said that the accused memory is sound, his intelligence average, and is aware of the nature and purpose of his acts. The trial proceeded, and the accused pled guilty. During the trial, a psychiatri- a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist of <laughs> Nair Hospital interviewed the accused yeah. in prison on August 5th and gave evidence that he was suffering from chronic paranoid schizophrenia. Hey. The, session, the sessions judge held the accused guilty of the charge of murder and sentenced him to death. Ragov declined to appeal. He was like, I'll take it. No way. Raghav was then interviewed on five different occasions for about two hours each time. In their final interview with him, the medical board attempted to shake hands with him and say goodbye, but he refused, saying that he was a representative of God who would not touch people belonging to this wicked world. I will kill you, but by God, if I'll shake your hand. (laughs) He showed signs of uh, systemized delusions of persecution and grandeur. The delusions were as follows. Uh, There are two distinct worlds, one where God lives and one where he lives. He is the power of Shakti. Other people are trying to put homosexual temptations in his way so that he may succumb Mm. and get converted to a woman. I I like that. (laughs) First off, it's Homosexual intentions. Everybody's just like, ooh, you're real cute. And he's like, ugh. And then he's like, are you trying to make me a woman? <laughs> it's like, no. Homosexual intercourse would convert him into a woman. That's not how that works. That he is 101% man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hundred. That
1: reminds
0: that SpongeBob saying something to tell you I'm a hundred percent man. <laughs> The government brought him to Mumbai to commit thefts and made him commit criminal acts. There are three governments, the Akbar government, the British government, and the Congress government, and that these governments are trying to prosecute him and put temptations before him. (laughs) Eat this chocolate. How dare you? (laughs) Raghav's sentence was reduced to life imprisonment because he was found to be incurably mentally ill. A few months later... Uh, Ragov died at Sassoon Hospital. He had been suffering from kidney problems. I like that he's like everybody's trying to tempt me, and it's like, <laughs> ah! Yeah, I love that other people are trying to put homosexual temptations in his way so that he may succumb and get converted to a woman. <laughs> does it like, it the outing does they, not become an itty without some surgical procedures, man. Like, happen. other people are trying to put homosexual temptations. Okay, that might make sense. Uh, you know, they're gays, and they're like, ooh, you good looking, because he's tall, dark, and handsome. But he thinks that they're not only doing that, but with the thought of turning him into a woman. <laughs> they're like, I'm gay for men, but afterwards, you are a woman. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> they like the dick? <laughs> like, they're not trying to get rid of it? <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's just, ooh. Well, and it's one of those things where he's like, I will kill you and I'll touch you to kill you, but otherwise don't shake my fucking hand. <laughs> I am a representative oh, of God. He's like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> that's Roman Ragov. I really only chose the name because it sounds fucking hilarious. <laughs> I'm Roman The The Royal Oak... Sniper. Sniper is, uh gary taylor so generic gary <laughs> gary gary the snail garlic garlic okay um do we have any so we have uh do you want to tell them the email real quick since we don't have our social media up yet one more time because it'll be said probably in every episode until we get anything else up it is justifiable fan talks at gmail.com i know that g Gmail... only the j is capitalized yeah I know that emailing is lame and that people don't like doing it, but that's really our only means right now. Up until Grace gets else. here and yeah. does the media for us. Once we get a steady rhythm with that going on, and if Grace just ends up not uh, working out or anything like that, we'll still keep up with social media. It just won't be as often, because we have lots of stuff to do. Have lots of stuff to do, and we do intend to have, you know, access to it, and we will respond to you guys. And we'll try it really hard to keep up with it, but that's also really hard. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also uh, real hard, since I don't even keep up with my own social media. <laughs> yeah, but this will be different. Yeah, this one actually has, like, a purpose. <laughs> but other than that, um, thank you guys for watching, slash listening, slash ignoring us and just having us as background noise. <laughs> Bye! Bye!